0: Well, I have a uh, super long, super controversial, somewhat technical message for you today as we finish out 1 Corinthians 14, so I'd better pray for us, and then we're going to jump right in, okay? Thank you, Lord, for your word. We love the Bible. We love your word. Lord, we come under its authority. We don't sit in judgment on it, but we submit to it. Give us understanding today through your Holy Spirit, Lord. And uh, teach us now, I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're going to go to a whole nother level today, you and me, (laughs) in this room. And I hope you're ready for that. Some of you are going to eat it up. It's going to get your juices flowing and prime your pump and stimulate your appetite and make you want to shout amen and cause you to grow more hungry for the word of God. And there are others of you I fear... I hope only a few maybe, who after a few minutes your eyes are going to glaze over, you're going to tune out and start thinking about what you're having for lunch or how the Buckeye game is going to turn out this afternoon. But I hope that you won't because this is fascinating, fascinating stuff. We're going to learn things about hermeneutics today. Say hermeneutics with me. Do you know what hermeneutics is? It is the science of interpreting the Bible. How do you go about interpreting the Word of God? What process do you, dis- do you use to discover what the Bible means by what it says? That's hermeneutics. And it's very, very important. The reason it's important is because we have a high view of the Bible around here. And the reason we have a high view of the Bible, or one of the reasons, is that the Bible has a high view of itself. It really does. Skeptics might call that circular reasoning, But for Christians, the Bible is self-validating. It's self-authenticating. Yes, there is a boatload of external corroboration for this book, but we believe the Bible stands on its own, stands by itself. Listen to what the Bible says about itself. Here's one of my favorites, Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, even drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great, Reward. The Bible has a high, high estimate of itself. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 10 35. Scripture, he said, cannot be broken. John 17 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Paul in 2 Timothy 3 16 wrote this All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. training in righteousness. In one sense, you could say Christians are those people who have chosen this book, the Bible, as the supreme authority in their lives. They don't view this book like they view other books. They view the Bible as in a league of its own. They believe that it tells them the truth. Christians are those who have staked their lives and their eternities on the Bible. Therefore, what the Bible says matters... And what it means matters. That's why it needs to be studied diligently to ascertain its meaning. Now, perhaps you have heard of the general method of studying the Bible called OIA. Have you heard of that? Not O-H-I-O, but O-I-A. Observation, interpretation, application. Observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean by what it says? An application. How does it apply to my life? Each of those three steps is important if we're going to be transformed by the word of God. But especially crucial is the middle one. Interpretation. If we don't get the meaning right, that can have huge ramifications. Cults are started through misinterpretations of the Bible. Hitler somehow justified the horrific actions that he did with the Bible. Did you know that? So interpretation matters. Hermeneutics matters. And in today's message, we're going to tackle a very challenging interpretive passage. Someone asked me if I brought my helmet today. Um, I just have the helmet of salvation on. That's enough. 1 Corinthians 14. There's a monster-sized study guide in your worship folder to pull out this morning so you can follow along with us. There is a single truth in this whole chapter that we've been studying for four weeks that stands out. It's a theological truth. It's a truth about God. Specifically, it's a truth about one particular aspect of God's nature. We find it succinctly stated for us in verse 33 of chapter 14, where it says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The NIV reads, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. This is telling us something about our God. The word confusion could be translated commotion or tumult or disorder. God is not a God of disorder, tumult or commotion, but He's a God of peace. The word means quietness, rest, oneness, harmony the point in this chapter that Paul wants to make is this. The manner in which we worship God should reflect the nature of the God that we worship. Let me say that again. The manner in which we worship God when we come together should reflect the nature of the God that we worship. Basically, he was saying this. The God we worship is completely at peace with himself. He is a God of order and we see that in the way he has created the universe, don't we? Whether it's the atom or the eyeball or a solar system or the specific precise instructions he gave for the construction of the tabernacle, God is a God of order and peace. And he is that also within himself. We know that God is three and yet one. And yet there's no rivalry within the Trinity. There's harmony. There's no individualism. There's no tumult or disorder or commotion. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are totally in sync with each other, totally harmonized in purpose, intent, and activity. And this is because there is order, there is structure within the Trinity, and we know this. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit of God submits to the Son and the Father. And so there's peace, but there's also love, isn't there? Father loves the Son. Oh, how he loves the Son. And he loves the Holy Spirit. And the Son loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. There is love in the Trinity. And because of that, there is perfect peace, not legislated peace. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And in this chapter, Paul is saying, because God is who he is in his nature, then God's people should worship in a way that reflects the order and structure and beauty of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's going to show us what orderly worship looks like in the church. And in the section we're looking at today, it begins with Paul talking about bringing order into how prophecy is carried out in the congregation, prophetic ministry. Verse 29, let's begin there. He writes this, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said interesting. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So what do we see here? Some pretty straightforward guidelines for how the gift of prophecy is to be Exercised in the congregation. I see six things. Prophecy should be spoken by two or three at most. Prophecies should be weighed or tested or sifted by others. They should be spoken one at a time. They should benefit and encourage everybody who's present. Prophets are responsible to abide by these guidelines. It says the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets, so he's saying, You're not out of control, not if you're under the Spirit's control. You can abide by these guidelines, and then lastly he states that God honoring prophetic practice is not confusing but results in peace, not chaos, but peace, because God is God of peace. So this raises some questions, doesn't it? What exactly are these prophecies that he 's talking about, and if you 've missed any of the last three messages, this messages this whole series is in a unit of four messages, and I Strongly encourage you to go online and listen to the previous ones that you've missed because we've been talking about this. Suffice it right now to say that prophecy, sometimes we think of that word in terms of predicting the future. And certainly that is one of, one of its meanings. But when the Bible uses the term, it's usually more general. It's, it's talking about any message revealed by God to a Christian that is meant to be shared with other people. That's a prophetic word. Wayne Grudem calls this congregational prophecy. And I believe that here in this passage, this is what Paul is talking about. Subjective prophecy, congregational prophecy, words that Christians believe God has given them to give to others for their encouragement or challenge or maybe even correction. These messages that he's talking about here are not on par with Scripture. Scripture. Not on par with scripture in any sense, because they can be misunderstood, misreported or misapplied by the one who's giving it. That's why it says they need to be weighed by others. Okay, if he was talking about scripture here, he wouldn't say, weigh it, (laughs) test it, because with scripture, we don't weigh. We obey. (laughs) We obey scripture. So what he's talking about here is is a kind of prophetic word that's given to someone, or they believe it's been given to them, that they're going to share with other people, and it needs to be weighed. It needs to be tested by others. This is not, as I've said, Thus saith the Lord, and I quote. This is, I sense that God might be saying this to us, might be wanting us to do this, or go this direction, or stop doing this. Subjective prophecy. Paul says that they must be tested or weighed. He reinforced that in another place in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.20, where he wrote, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. So there he says, don't just automatically write off something that someone says that they believe God gave them. Don't let cynicism be your default mode when somebody shares what they believe is a word from God, but do test it. Test everything. Weigh it. And that begs a second question, doesn't it? What are the criteria for weighing a prophecy? For weighing it, for testing it. Well, we should say that the first and primary criteria for testing any prophecy is, how does it align with this? How does this subjective prophecy align with the objective prophecy of the Word of God? Because this trumps Everything else. Amen. The word of God trumps everything else. So if someone in your small group tells you that they have a word from the Lord, that you're supposed to marry that guy or that gal who is not a Christian, who's not a believer, that's when you say, I'm weighing your subjective word of prophecy against the objective word of truth in the Bible which says that I should only marry a Christian, 2 Corinthians 6.14, 1 Corinthians 7.39. And when I weigh your word for me against the word of God, your word fails the test. So I'm not going to take that word to heart. Same for if someone gives you a word to leave your spouse for a younger, sexier gal or to sign on for a shady business deal that promises you millions of dollars, or tells you that you ought to go sell everything you have because the Lord is coming back on a certain day, you should say, those subjective words of prophecy don't align with the objective truth of God's word. I'm going to test it first by the word of God. Conversely, if someone gives you a word that God is calling you, for example, to pray for an enemy or to forgive somebody who has sinned against you, or that God's going to give you the grace to remain faithful to your spouse, even during difficult times. Those words align with God's word, and you should take that to heart. So that's the first and primary test of any subjective word of prophecy, is how does it line up with God's objective word, the Bible? Now, beyond that first test of comparing prophecies with Scripture, then the testing weighing process gets a little more squishy, doesn't it? If, for example, somebody in your small group gives you a prophetic word that God wants the group to stop being so ingrown and to start reaching out more, how do you test that word? Or if someone comes up to you and says, God gave me a word for you, brother, sister. God wants you to begin a ministry to drug addicts. And he's going to give you the power and the grace to carry that out. How do you test that word? Because those seem to be in general alignment with themes of Scripture, like reaching out to other people and ministering to the outcast and the downtrodden. Well, I want to offer you several suggestions for weighing prophecies that seem to pass the first test, the test of scriptural alignment. Let me give you four things. First. Get your heart in alignment with the will of God, no matter what it might be. John seven seventeen, Jesus says, You'll know the will of God if you're willing to do it, no matter what it is. See, some of us want to know the will of God, not in order to obey it, but in order to vote on it. See if we like it. And Jesus said it doesn't work that way. You need to cultivate the kind of trust in God that gets your heart in such a condition where you're saying, God, I'm willing to do your will no matter what it is. Just tell me, and I'll do it. That's the first thing. Second, if someone gives you a word and you're wrestling with, is this from the Lord or not, and it seems to align with Scripture, I recommend you pray that word back to God and seek his peace. Lord, my heart wants to do your will. I I need to know, and so I'm praying this back to you. Give me your peace if this is from you. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Third, check the word with spiritual overseers who know you and know God. Take it to somebody whom you trust, who you know is godly, who walks with Jesus and who knows you. And say, I've been given this message and, and I don't know whether it's, I should take it to heart or not. I don't know if it's from the Lord or not. What do you think? In the multitude of counselors, there is what? Safety. Check it with a spiritual overseer, a small group leader, a pastor, a spiritual shepherd, an elder, somebody you respect spiritually. And fourth, if you're still unsure, ask God for additional confirmations. Ask God, Lord, if this is from you, give me other confirmations that will reinforce and support that this is from you and that I need to take this to heart, that I need to do this. The Bible says, if you ask the Lord for a fish, will he give you a stone? The Lord wants you to know his will. And so ask him for additional confirmations. Okay, so it says that in a group setting, if a prophecy is giving, then it says others should weigh what is said. Who are the others? Two possibilities here. It might mean a specific group of people, like the other prophets in the group should weigh what is said, or The spiritual leaders in the group should weigh what is said. Or those who have certain gifts, the gift of discernment or the gift of distinguishing of spirits. So a limited subset of who's there should weigh it. In our setting, like this, where there's hundreds of people gathered, we have opted here that if you believe you've been given a word of prophecy from the Lord for the whole congregation that you would submit it first to the elders of New Life Church so that they would be the ones weighing and testing it against Scripture and discerning if this is from the Lord and we're supposed to give it to the whole congregation. It could mean that Paul meant that the others were everybody who's present. Let the others weigh what is said, everybody else who is present. Now, if Pastor Mark Driscoll's research is correct, the church at Corinth consisted of around 70 people which would basically amount to a large house church. And it would make sense in a setting that size with that number of people where everybody else could weigh in on a word that had been presented. In our setting, we feel like that practice is best carried out in the small group where there's fewer people gathered there and relationships have been established, friendships, and people know each other and people know each other's gifts. That if one of the group members says, you know, I sense that the Lord would have us do this or that, that the rest of the group, the entire group could... Weigh that and test that and seek to discern if it is from the Lord. It seems to be more doable in that size of a group. So, to kind of summarize this section, prophetic words that build up the body of Christ are to be allowed, they're to be given in an orderly fashion, they're to be tested and weighed for their alignment with Scripture and their edification value to the body of Christ. And if they're determined to be legitimate and true... Then they're to be taken to heart by believers. You got all that? That was the easy part. Now, there's a second area that Paul wants to bring order, structure to in that church in Corinth, and that is in the, the matter of the participation of women. Notice verse 43, and remember the context, Okay. Here's how it begins in this section, verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So there you have it. Does it seem to you like Paul has gathered up all the controversial topics he could possibly find and packed them all together into this one chapter? I mean, maybe if he'd thrown in some words on predestination and then a few other thoughts on homosexuality, then we could have addressed all the hot-button topics in the modern church in one chapter of the Bible. How do we interpret this section? What does it say and what does it mean by what it says? Now, since I've already given you one scholarly word, hermeneutics, let me throw in another one. Exegesis. Would you say that with me? Exegesis. Exegesis. I studied exegesis in Bible college and... I remember coming back to my room one day, and my roommate Mario said, I keep hearing you talk about extra Jesus. (laughs) I'm like, no, 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 no. There's only one Jesus. This is exegesis, not extra Jesus. (laughs) I was taught, and I still believe in exegesis, the exegetical method of interpretation. You say, what's that? Well, exegesis is the method of interpretation that seeks to draw out the meaning of the text of Scripture, to draw out and discover what's already there, the opposite would would be to try to read into it what I already believe and make it say what I want it to say. That's isogesis, okay? See the difference? Exegesis is drawing out the meaning that's there. Isogesis is reading into it what I want it to say because I already believe something. I believe in Exegesis, Trying to draw out the meaning of the scripture. And and true exegesis involves discovering several things. I think these are on your notes there. First, to exegete correctly, you've got to discern what the author's intent was. Is this on your... Okay. I know this is going to be technical, but... I don't want to just give you my interpretation of this passage without you understanding how I got there. Okay? Author's intent... What did the original writer intend to convey convey to his readers? Exegesis involves answering that question. What did Paul intend to say to the Corinthians? Second, historical context. How would the original readers have understood it in their setting? How would the Corinthians have understood what Paul was saying here about women keeping silent in the churches? You see, the Bible was written for us, but to them. And we need to discover first, how would they have understood this? Third, grammar. In the grammar that Paul used, what is the meaning that's conveyed? What does the grammar tell us? Fourth, what's called lexical interpretation. That has to do with the meaning of words. What is the meaning of the words that that the writer used in their original language? Pastors in their training are required to take original languages. I had four years of Greek in Bible college. I don't even like Greek food necessarily, but I know Greek. Greek. Although baklava is really quite good. (laughs) What's the meaning of the words in the original language? And then context. So important. How does what we read here fit in with the scripture that surrounds it? The scripture that comes after it. The scripture that comes before it. And all the other scripture in the New Testament and in the Bible that relates to this topic called parallel passages. So. I'm a fan of the exegetical hermeneutic that seeks to understand the historical, grammatical, lexical, contextual meaning of a passage. Follow that? (laughs) That's a mouthful, I know. Now, the women should keep silent in the churches. It is shameful for a woman to speak in church. What does this mean? It seems to me that this passage on women's participation in church poses three interpretive questions that we have to answer. One. Is this universal or local? Was Paul giving a universal principle that should be applied to every church, in every city, in every region of the world, in every generation? Is it universal? Or was he narrowing in on a a specific local situation there in Corinth? Was this word just for that church? That question needs to be answered. Second, was he referring to all women or certain women? Was Paul prohibiting all the women in the church from speaking or only a particular group or certain kind of women? He says, the women should keep silent in the churches. Which women? All or some. And then third, was he limiting all speaking or just certain kinds of speaking when he said they should be silent? So a meaningful interpretation of this text must address those questions or the meaning won't be clear and the application will be confused. Are you still with me on this? (laughs) Okay. As you might imagine, there are a variety of interpretations that have been given for this text based on a variety of answers to those three questions. Some of them seem to me to be more eisegesis than exegesis. So here's the range of interpretations I've seen in my study of this. I'm numbering them so that we can refer back later. I'll start with the narrowest, most restrictive interpretations. Women can't do nothing or say nothing. And I'll move down the list to the broadest, most open interpretations. Ready? Here we go. Number one, some people believe that this is what it means. No woman in any church anywhere should ever open her mouth and utter any sounds, period. Let the women be silent in church. Obviously, that would rule out singing, saying amen, coughing. Burping, no noises, be silent. That's the narrowest interpretation. Number two, no woman, not not anywhere, but in that church in Corinth should ever open her mouth and utter any sounds. I find it hard to support or defend either of those two interpretations for several reasons, but one is because right here in the same letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talked about women praying and prophesying in the church, albeit with their heads covered, but... He didn't prohibit it, so either he's schizophrenic, saying something different in 14 than he said in 11, or else there's another interpretation that he meant. Three, some people would say, oh, you know, he wasn't restricting any woman, but certain kinds of women need to keep silent in the church. What kinds of women, Paul? Well, maybe loud, disruptive, disorderly women. Others would say, uneducated women who had lots of questions should keep silent in the church. Or others, this is not a popular view, but married women should keep silent in the church. Because he says, you know, if you want to learn something, ask your husbands at home. So they would say, obviously, Paul was referring to married women, which would seem to be kind of a penalty. You know, if you're single, hey, you can jump up and say anything. But once you get married, you've got to be quiet. Ask your husband at home. I don't... See that number four. It is yeah. These people would say Paul is referring to certain kinds of women, but not universally. Just there in Corinth, these kinds of women in Corinth shouldn't open their mouths. That Paul wasn't giving a universal um, command here. Number five. Others would say, well, no, it's not. You know, it's not that. It's that Paul was limiting certain kind of speaking in the church. Women shouldn't speak in certain ways. Well, what ways? Well, he's saying, you know, don't ask questions out loud in church. That's the kind of speech he was limiting. Others would look at this chapter and say, well, he's talked a lot about speaking in tongues. Maybe he's saying women should keep silent in the church in the sense that they shouldn't speak in tongues in the church. Or third, women shouldn't give prophecies. Some would say that. Although, again, back in chapter 11, he said women can pray and prophesy. Others would say, well, what he's talking about is is preaching and teaching authoritatively to the whole congregation. That's what he is limiting here. And others still would say, well, the context seems to suggest that he's talking about weighing prophecies in the church. And so what Paul is saying here is that only men should weigh and test the prophecies given in church. Number six is related, again, talking about certain kinds of women shouldn't speak in these certain ways. Number seven, certain kinds of women in that church in Corinth only shouldn't speak in certain ways. Number eight is a, an interesting interpretation. And basically, this interpretation says this is all a quote. Paul is quoting an opposing viewpoint in this passage. He doesn't believe it, but he's quoting in order to refute it that Paul was actually championing the rights of all women to speak in any ways in any church by refuting this view that was held commonly in that culture or in that church. Interesting. And then number nine, Paul was a male chauvinist who desired to repress and subjugate women, and sophisticated modern-day people should dismiss him as a whacked-out wingnut steeped in an archaic male-dominated paradigm. In other words, Paul was a nut, and we shouldn't listen to him. So you can see the whole range of interpretations here from, you know, no no woman should be able to say anything in church to Paul was a nut, women can say whatever they want. Over here you obviously have a lower view of Scripture, right? And a lower view of apostleship. I'd like to address interpretation number eight because I think it's got some problems, but I don't have time. So just know that, that number eight has some issues with it. Speaking of issues, you need to know that this issue and the interpretation of this passage is disputed broadly in evangelical churches. This has been and continues to be one of the most heated controversies in the church. It has divided whole denominations. Did you know that? The issue of women's roles in the church. And you can't just dismiss it as some kind of irrelevant theological debate that we don't have to talk about. Like if I asked you, are you an infralapsarian or a superlapsarian? You'd go, I don't know. And I don't care. doesn't matter. It doesn't affect my daily life. But this affects our daily life. 54% of this congregation is female. And it affects what avenues of ministry and leadership and speaking are open or closed to women. So this is not irrelevant. Every church either actively or passively, has to address this. So I do have an opinion on the meaning of this particular passage. But before I share with you where I land on this, I want to share with you where our elders landed on the broader issue of the role of women in ministry and in the local church. Five years ago, our elder team tackled this question head on because it it had become an issue in our church. We studied it in depth for many months. Oh, did we? And we arrived at a position, a stance that we felt was biblically sound, loving, and answered the real-life questions that people had about what was permitted and what was not permitted here at New Life Church when it came to women's participations. This document's been online for quite a while. I don't know how else to do this other than read it to you. I'm just going to read it to you. From fall of 2006. An open letter to New Life Church. From the elders of New Life Church. We love the body of Christ here at New Life. What a great thing it is. To be in a church where every believer is encouraged. To use his or her gifts to minister to others. When we think about the potential impact of every New Lifer. Serving faithfully. Utilizing his or her gifts in their ministry. It is staggering to us. It boggles our minds. This issue the role of women in local church ministry is a very important matter. We want to state right up front that it is not our intent here to limit anyone's ministry or the use of their gifts at New Life Church. Rather, our intent is to bring clarity to the haziness that has existed regarding certain roles of spiritual authority in the local church. We are aware that there is widespread debate on this issue and that there is much diversity even within the evangelical Christian community. In crafting this position, we are not claiming that we are the only ones who have it right. We're simply doing our best under the leadership of the Spirit and the Word of God to present a stance for our church that seems consistent with the Scriptures and is clear. We want you to know several important things about our work over the past seven months. Number one, it hasn't been easy. We spent nearly 20 hours together and many more individually studying, discussing, praying, debating, seeking God to show us what his plan is for our church in this matter. Phew! If we seem a little tired out when you say you know why. Number two, we have been stretched. We've examined the pertinent scriptures on this topic. We've read several books and delved into the meaning of Greek words. It's been a mind-expanding experience. Three, we just want to be clear. The thing we want to avoid on this issue is being ambiguous. Being hazy on this topic over the years has sometimes been confusing to our people. We believe we've answered the key practical questions people want to know about this issue. Four, we understand. We know this is a hot button issue in church culture these days. We realize that some people have strong feelings about this subject. We've undertaken this work knowing what is at stake. Five, there's a lot of gray. Our study revealed that while a few pieces of this issue are black and white in the scriptures, many others are not. They are so-called gray areas in which each of us needs to develop personal convictions to live by. That's one reason why this study has been so challenging for us. We each came into it with some convictions already formed. Looking at matters from different viewpoints stretched us. Six, we've done our best to draw lines only where the scriptures clearly draw them. In the areas where we've opened the door, we've done so because we believe the scriptures allow for the possibility. If a door remains closed, it's for that same reason. Having said these things, we want everyone to know that we appreciate and value all the women of New Life Church. Our church has some of the most gifted, spiritual, mature, kingdom-building women on the planet. And we praise God for you. You have added great value to our lives as sisters in the faith. And we truly love all of you for the sake of his body, the elders of New Life Church. So New Life Church affirms the following position with respect to women serving in local church ministry. And there's, I think, seven or eight areas here. Okay, I'm going to continue to read. Number one, elders. The governing authority of the church, the elder team, is limited to qualified men. First Timothy three, Titus one. God's design is for men to serve in roles of spiritual authority, both in the church and in the family. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Two, gifts. A variety of spiritual gifts are given to believers by the Holy Spirit without respect of gender. Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 12. As such, both men and women are encouraged to exercise their gifts in the church for the good of all. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Gifts should not be confused with authority roles in the church, however, which do seem to have certain gender restrictions. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 10. Third, pastors. In the New Testament, the term pastor is most often used as a verb. Pastor the flock of God. 1 Timothy 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God. It describes one of the primary functions of an elder overseer in the church, Acts twenty twenty eight. This term is also used in the context of spiritual gifts, Ephesians 4.11. As such, pastor, pastor is not primarily a title or a position, but a gift and a function. As a spiritual gift, we see no scriptural or visible basis for claiming that God gives this gift of shepherding only to men. Women who possess this gift are encouraged to use it in roles that are not limited by scripture. Four, deacons. In Scripture, deacons are not charged with spiritual authority to govern the church. How many of you were raised in churches that were basically run by a deacon board? Can I see your hands? Okay. It's a very common form of church governance. Only problem is, it's not biblical. We see no biblical basis for the traditional view of deacons functioning as a board that runs the church. Deacons were initially chosen to fill a specific need in the early church and to free the elders up to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer, Acts 6. It is clear in Scripture that deacons were typically men, First Timothy 3, 8 through 10. It is also possible that qualified women served in this capacity as well, First Timothy 3, 11, Romans 16, 1. As a result, the elders are open but cautious towards the appointment of women for this role. The elders will select biblically qualified men or women as they deem appropriate to fulfill this function on an as-needed basis. Five, how about ministries and small groups? Church leadership is permitted to call upon mature, gifted, capable, humble women to lead mixed-gender ministries and groups provided they give evidence of being under authority both to their husbands, when applicable, and to the elders of the church, 1 Corinthians 11. In this role, these women serve as co-laborers in the work of God, a term that Paul used for the women who served alongside him, Philippians 4.3. How about teaching classes? Number six, church leadership is permitted to call upon mature, gifted, capable, humble women to teach training classes of mixed gender, provided they give evidence of being under authority both to their husbands when applicable and to the elders of the church. And lastly, how about speaking in celebrations? The authoritative proclaiming of God's word to the entire congregation appears to be scripturally limited to men, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. Specifically, elders and those authorized by the elders, 1 Timothy 5, 17. The elders are permitted to call upon mature, gifted, capable, humble women from time to time to speak to the church for purposes of illustrating or applying scriptural truth as they deem appropriate so that's the statement in summary it is online on our website enewlife.com under document vault and i encourage you to check it out and reread back through that i'm proud of the work that we did five years ago i stand by that and um i do i, I think it's a good a good work now regarding the passage here first corinthians 14 Where do you stand, Steve? Well, I find myself these days aligning with those who believe that in the context of what Paul's writing here, that he was referring to the weighing or testing of prophecies and that he was limiting that function to men in the congregation. So, 5E is where I land, if you're following this. I admit I could be wrong. But there are some theological heavyweights who hold to this view. And I think it fits the context. I don't think Paul has left the topic yet of prophecies being given in the congregation and the need for those prophecies to be weighed or tested. In that church, everybody was getting up and in disorderly fashion, speaking in tongues, giving prophecies, asking questions about the prophecies, trying to test the prophecies. And I believe Paul's bringing some order to that chaos by limiting how many people could prophesy, by saying it needs to be one at a time, and by reserving the testing and weighing function to the men who are present as a reflection of God's structure and authority in the creation order, thus his reference to the law. I take that as a reference, as being a reference to Genesis chapter 2. So, I believe that both men and women are permitted to give Prophetic words in the worship gathering, but that the function of weighing those words, discerning whether they're from God, falls to men as part of God's order of authority. And I don't believe it was just a local instruction just meant for that church in Corinth. I do believe it was a universal principle. I get that from verse 33 where he says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Parentheses when it comes to weighing prophecies the basis for this is that god is a god of order and structure and authority and he has pressed that order and authority right into the creation he has including the principle of male headship in the church as in the family and voluntary submission on the part of women it says that adam was created first and then eve And the principles of spiritual authority in the church are said to flow out of that order, 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. So I see it as a practice to be applied universally to all Christian congregations. So mark me down for 5E, at least here in March of 2011. I could be mistaken. If I get to heaven and Jesus says you were wrong, I'll say, what are you going to say, you know, you're, I'm sorry, I, I was wrong. If you agree with me, great. If not, we can still be friends because we are knit together in the body of Jesus Christ and love trumps all. Right? Agape love trumps all. But Paul is not quite done with his point yet although I'm close to being done with this sermon. (laughs) Almost done. Hang in there. He anticipates being challenged by this church. Of course, we've seen that they're kind of a fleshly, carnal church. So in finishing out this section, he employs some heavy sarcasm. He makes a stunning statement about his own authority as an apostle, and then he summarizes everything up in a very succinct statement. Verse 36, he talks about order that arises from spiritual authority. Or was it from you that the word of God came? That's some biting sarcasm. Or are you the only ones that has reached? Can I get the idea that this church wanted to act independently of the other churches? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized whoa this is called pulling rank this is Paul saying look if anybody in your congregation thinks they can give some guidelines for worship other than what I just laid down you ought to pull that person's card in effect he's saying my words as an apostle trump any other words given by any supposed so-called prophets in your congregation. This is heavy stuff. This is apostolic authority. He's saying you are not to act independently of the apostles teaching and you're not to act independently of all the other churches. All of God's churches are under apostolic authority, under that umbrella. God has chosen to speak his words through his apostles. And that's what we believe, isn't it? That's what I've been saying. This trumps subjective words of prophecy. Paul did not seem to have a problem pulling rank when he felt he was being challenged. He said, I'm an apostle. God speaks through me his very words. So what I'm giving you is the very word of God. And order will arise out of being submitted to that authority. Then he sums up the whole section with a call to order In all things. Notice verse 39 and 40. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. God is a God of order. A God of peace. A God of harmony. And so your worship gatherings should reflect that. They should not be disorderly and confusing. And filled with commotion. They should be orderly and structured. And harmonious and beautiful. Prioritize prophecy, do not forbid speaking in tongues, he says, although he has regulated that gift pretty severely in the public setting. But in all things, decency and order. Well, congratulations. You just endured or enjoyed a four-week series on one of the most controversial chapters in the entire Bible, certainly in the New Testament. May May the Lord of the church use his word to transform us, us into the church that he has called us to be, that he had in his mind when he placed the idea for this church in a young man's heart 32 years ago. May we cooperate with the spirit of God. Always tethered to the word of God to become a church that brings maximum glory to God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I hope I have not said too much. I hope I have not said too little. I pray your word would take root in our hearts. May we reaffirm today as a church that we are under your authority. We are submitted to you. Jesus, you're the head of this church. Your word governs our belief system and our practice. Lord, we submit to you what you want to come out of this chapter in terms of altering or changing us, please bring about. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the cross and the gospel that saves us. And we thank you for your word. It is precious. May it be like honey to our souls pray in your precious name. Amen.